You are listening to Natural Born Alchemist. Welcome to episode number 236 of the Natural Born Alchemist podcast. My name is Alex and I'll be your host. Hey everyone. How's it going? How's it hanging? Doing well? Have you been tripping lately? I hope you trip with good intentions. If you trip simply to escape reality, then you're playing the game all wrong. In my humble opinion. Now in this episode we are going to dive into something close to the heart for me. Indigenous cultures and the rainforest. I'm going to play not one but two interviews I did when I was in Ecuador over a year ago. (laughs) I've been meaning to release these earlier but hey things kept getting in the way. Also, it's not like they are dated in any way. Anything you will hear in these interviews is still relevant. But for the listener, it might be confusing jumping straight into something. So to get your bearings, to you know, set the stage, so to speak, uh, in both these talks, the topic is mostly about the Ecuadorian part of the Amazon rainforest, specifically Sarayaku in the first interview and later Yasuni. And both these uh, beautiful rainforest regions are populated by indigenous people under threat from massive oil companies that uh, wants to drill for oil. And in the Sarayaku region uh, we have the Quechua people and in the Yasuni region a people called Waurani. Waurani, <laughs> how to pronounce. The first interview is with Eduardo Cohn. And he's an associate professor of anthropology at McGill University. And best known for the book How Forests Think. This book is based on four years of fieldwork among the runa of Ecuador's upper Amazon. Eduardo Cohn draws on his rich ethnography to explore how Amazonians interact with the many creatures that inhabit one of the world's most complex ecosystems. So thanks for being on the podcast. Thank you. It's a pleasure. So could you tell the listeners a bit about who you are and and what you do? My name is Eduardo Cohn. I'm um, an anthropologist. I teach at McGill University in Montreal, Canada, and I've worked for a long time in the Ecuadorian Amazon with um, Amazonian people who live intimately with the rainforest. And my goal has been to try to understand what that relationship is about. Um, as an anthropologist, my method is to, to, to do ethnography. Ethnography means spending a lot of time with people in their environments and learning to listen uh, in a new way. So my work has been really about that, um, learning to listen in a new way, opening myself up to new forms of communication. And what I realized uh, when I came to Ecuador to do this work was that when I started spending time with people um, and entered into the kinds of conversations they had, they weren't just conversing among themselves. They were also relating to many other kinds of beings in the forest. And so I had to learn to listen to those kinds of, of communication. So I had to learn how to dream the way people dream. I had to walk in the forest and 
what I would see in the forest would make its way into my dreams. And I realized that um, anthropology needed a new kind of language to um, be able to capture those forms of communication as well. Anthropology is very good at understanding how people relate to each other, but it tends to stop at the frontiers of what we think of as human humans. And what's so special and important about the way in which people live in the Amazon is that they don't recognize those boundaries. They're constantly searching for new ways to reach out to the other beings with whom they live. And so I realized that I had to rethink what it means to be human and what it means to do anthropology um, in order to make sense of those forms of communication and those, those messages. And so I, I spent a lot of time trying to figure that out theoretically, um, and I, I, I wrote a book about it. It's called How Forests Think, which makes the claim that forests really think, that there's thinking out there that is not just human thinking. Um, so that's, that's the kind of work I did for a long time, relatively academic, um, in the sense that I was observing things and then reflecting on them and writing about them. Um, and I became convinced that forests really do think. And once I became convinced of that, I also realized that that's a good thing. And it was also a thing that's being threatened. So in my current phase of the work I do, um, I've taken this idea that at first was important for me to argue academically. Um, and I've tried to make uh, forge alliances with other people who are thinking in the same way. So not just people who live with thinking forests, but people who are uh, trying to argue that that's a good thing that should be preserved, that are creating a kind of ethics and a kind of politics around um, around thinking with forests and finding and, and preserving spaces where thinking forests can continue to flourish. So that's why I've begun to work with people like Sarayaku, the, the, the Pueblo of Sarayaku, the community of Sarayaku, and other people in the Amazon and other people in Quito and other places. Um, and the idea has been, quite frankly, to, to, to try to bring this into, into, into life, to, to not just change academic ways of thinking about this, but actually change all of our ways of thinking about this. So my work has become more political in that sense and more collaborative. Um, and, and it's been super exciting to, to um, get to know what people are doing in Sarayaku because they, they also have been, like me, impacted by the reality that forests think, that they interact with these beings. But they're not just living with it. They're trying to do something with it in a political register. So they're trying to raise consciousness about it. And that's a super, super exciting thing. And my work has been, uh, lately, has been dedicated to that sort of, uh, that more political task of, well, how do we actually get people to think this way? Um, and so it's, been, it's quite exciting. Was it an easy thing for you to realize, or did you have to struggle against your own uh, academic, rational, Western upbringing to, to realize that the, that the forest thinks? Well, I think what happened to me is that, you know, I think like many of these things, they, st they begin as emotional problems. I knew there was something wrong with the way, I, the way we live, the way we think about things, and I think that's what maybe brought me to the Amazon. 
And, and I knew from the beginning when I was doing my work that I was trying to figure out some way in which I knew that the way we think about things is wrong. I knew that. I felt it. Um, but I didn't know how to talk about it. I didn't have the tools to talk about it. And I had to find them. I had to invent some. I had to you know, discover them. And I had to really fight against my discipline and my, many of my mentors um, to, to de- you know, to develop this. Um, but I think I knew it at an emotional level. It's, it's more like finding the way to then give that, you know, to bring, to, to put it into concepts. That was the hard part. Wasn't there some Canadian woman scientist, I can't recall her name now, who uh, kind of proved that uh, trees communicate? Yes, so... Um, there's been a lot of literature that's come out about the, the trees communicate, um, and that they, you know, they, 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 you know, through through various kinds of, you know, the through roots and all sorts of, you know, different. They're all different different forms of communication, and that's very important. Um, those are really important findings, but I think sometimes it, it, uh, if we look at those. Um, we have to be careful how we interpret that because we don't want to make trees into the kinds of human beings we are. Oh, you see, they have brains. They talk the way we talk. Um, no, we have to understand the, the, their kind of communication on their terms. And I think that's the challenge. I think there's a misunderstanding of what anthropology is. Anthropology, people say, is, oh, you're coming here to study the natives. You're, you're here to impose your ideas on things. And, and, and those criticisms are probably true in many ways, and they, cert- they certainly are true in many ways. But what anthropology really tries to do is it tries to listen in new ways, to break all of our preconceptions and to open ourselves to another way of thinking. And I think that's what I've been trying to... I mean, it's imperfect. I, I'm not... Uh, I haven't fully been able to do it. And it's a constant struggle, but that's what I've been trying to do. Um, and learning to think the way forests think requires uh, us to think about thinking in a new way. It's not what we think it is. What indigenous communities have you worked with? I've primarily wor- worked with Quechua-speaking people, um, the language that people of Sarayaku speak, um, and uh, that's the main the, the main communities I've been working with. I've also been working with the Sapara people. Those are the only groups I've been really working with. Um, and can you talk a bit about where this is so people might not know? Oh, yeah. So I've, I've been working in, in Ecuador, um, the upper Amazon of Ecuador, um, areas that are not too far from the Andes, but who are, uh, it's in the upper parts of the Amazonian watershed. So um, people who live in, in, in tropical rainforests, some of the most diverse rainforests, um, and uh, some of them have been, you know, I've worked so somewhat northern, more northern part of Ecuador, uh, the, of the Ecuadorian Amazon, and now in the cent- south central part, which is the Bobonas area. What do you think uh, people in the West who live in Europe, for instance, what, what do you think they could get from the indigenous that could benefit them in their lives, apart from the fact that we, we need to save the planet from destruction, but apart from that, you know? Well, I think it's important to realize that... Um, 
the solutions to these problems are going to come with, from within us, all of us. And what I think is important about recognizing that forests think, or that the, or in the way in the idiom of Sarayaku that the forest is living, Kausaksacha, um, is not to say, oh, the forest over there in the Amazon is living. It's to say that we are part of, we, all of us, are part of these uh, larger, uh, we're part of a larger ecology of, of beings. And we have to learn to listen to that. And that's, that's within all of us. And that we all have to recognize that being human has special, very special advantages, special way, we have a very special way of being, uh, a way of being conscious, uh, a way of thinking, about planning. Um, and that within that, that form of thinking always creates problems for us. And that thinking like a human requires constantly unthinking the human. And we have to learn to, to, to be in touch with that other form of thinking. And one of the most important ways of doing that is through being, paying attention to our dreams. Dreaming is the, is, the, is the form of thinking that we do that's a lot like the way the forests think. And it's no wonder that people in the Amazon think so much with dreams, uh, take them so seriously, because when you dream, you're entering into another form of communicative logic. Um, and recovering those kinds of things are very important. So it's not so much about, oh, let's follow the Amazonians or let's go to the Amazon. I mean, that's, those are all great things, but it's about finding those things within us, all of us, which we have around us. I don't know if you know much about it, but if you do, could you talk a bit about the Quechua cosmology or how they see see that thing? Well, Quechua cosmology um, basically posits that <coughs> excuse me <coughs> basically posits that that there are many kinds of beings in the world that we're never alone. Um, so one has to always be attentive to the, the things around us that seem to be just things, maybe persons trying to tell us something. So it's a, it's a radical form of opening to the possible communications that are out there. So for example, dreams. We go to sleep, we have these ideas, we have dreams. Um, well, what do we do with it? Um, well, for Kichwa people, they're always asking, well, what does this mean? Who's trying to tell me what? That constant curiosity to understand what the messages around us are and how to hear them is the basis for this kind of cosmology. Now with it, from within that one has to understand that the beings in the forest it's not just a simple sort of flat world. There are hierarchies so there are many many kinds of beings. Ants are beings. Um, uh, deer are beings. But the, the beings that are, are very important in some ways are the supreme beings. The beings that are sort of the ones that are sort of guiding those other beings. So there's a kind of hierarchy. And so a lot of what Amazonians are interested in are tapping into these hierarchies. So entering into these contact with these other beings that you might call spirits. Would you say that their uh, belief system is uh, pantheistic in a way? You could say that. I mean, I think that we have to be very careful with the words we use. For example, belief system. Um, it's not really a belief. Belief is a belief is a is a term that is very much part of the modern world, right? 
when you believe in something, you're basically saying it's not true, but you're going to try to understand. That's not really how people in the Amazon think about things. These are, it's not about believing or not, it's whether you experience them or not. You don't have to try to believe it. It's just people have these experiences by having these kinds of relationships. And, and that's, um, you know, that's, uh, that's, what the, that's what this is about. Whether it's pantheistic, I mean, pantheism, I think it, it's, a, it's an approximation of this thing. That, that basically there are, I mean, pantheism claims that there are many gods out there, right? And that, 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 that would be true. But the thing is, the way that people in the Amazon say is that there are many persons there because all persons are gods. In fact, the missionaries were very concerned about this. They would say, these people, they think that everyone is a god. And yes, so it's pantheistic in that sense, but really what it is is pan-person or something. There are many persons there. But they do have this concept of uh, Pachamama, um, the Mother Earth, and they see the Earth as the mother. And I guess that's also different from the scientific outlook where it's more father version. (laughs) Uh, At least from my experience, the indigenous have more uh, value or uh, respect for the concept of mother or the mother archetype more than we do in the West. I think think it's hard to say. I mean, the the, the Pachamama is a term that's it's hard to say. I mean, there are many kinds of beings in the in the forest and, and in the world, and some of them are more male and some of them are more female. Um, there's some communities that recognize an overarching Pachamama, others who don't. Um, so it's hard for me to say exactly uh, from my experience whether that's the case. But clearly, there are many kinds of beings, some of which are more feminine, but some of which are more masculine. That's true. Could you talk a bit about the, the issues that these indigenous people that you work with, what they face uh, in terms of uh, extraction and development? Well, I think the main, the main issue is... So what's so important about the way in which Amazonian people live is, a, is, is that they live... is living in constant relationship with a forest. So anything that disrupts that is the threat to that form of being. Um, and, and the principal threats to that are, are roads, uh, roads that basically bring in, that roads come in and with a road, as a road comes in, um, people start settling along the roads. They, the first loggers come in and take out the trees. Um, and then all sorts of other forms of living come in as well. Um, and then the economic relationship shifts. People um, stop uh, working uh, in relationship to a larger ecology and start linking themselves to um, a larger economy. Um, so that's one major threat. I think it's the most important threat. The other one, of course, are, are the large-scale extractive activities, which are you know bringing in a lot of destruction. Um, and often those come alongside with roads because it's much cheaper to bring to do these things when you have a road system. Do the indigenous here in Ecuador face uh, 
like systematic racism from the government of the country? Do, are they considered a lower class of citizen? Yes, I mean, there's an ongoing, uh, there's a lot of racism. I mean, things have shifted a lot in the last couple of decades. Uh, there's a lot more respect, but still there's a lot of racism as well. It continues to be, Ecuador continues to, in part, continues to valorize the the Western element over these other things. But that is also shifting. Uh, there are all sorts of interesting things coming out, happening now. What do you think uh, normal people can do to, to, to help the indigenous and, and the rainforest uh, in their everyday lives? Well, I think one thing is to be aware of what's going on. Um, I think people like folks in Sarayaku are, are very well connected with social media. Um, being aware Speaking up, speaking out, um, learning about these things are is what what people can do, and then of course also putting pressure on on the the companies that are that are coming in. Of course, we're all complicit because we all drive, we use oil, uh, we use you know fossil fuels. Um, so somehow, um, right, recognizing that is also important. So, if people want to read your book, where can they get hold of it? Well. Uh, How Forests Think is available uh, online. It's also available in French and in Japanese and in Russian right now. And soon it'll come out in Spanish too. Do you have like a website? No, I'm not particularly good at that yet. I should, but I don't. But you can Google my name, you can find me. I'm, I'm, I'm on the internet. Thank you a lot for talking to me. Yeah, it's a real pleasure. Thanks so much. Thanks, Eduardo. Uh, all right, let's not waste time and jump straight into my next interview I did with Ryan Kilaki. Ryan is a wildlife biologist and a filmmaker, and he has made an award-winning documentary called Yasuni Man. This documentary talks about the conflicts uh, within the Ecuadorian Amazon. Before, it was under siege by mis- missionaries seeking to civilize the indigenous people, the Wairani people. And um, now the Wairani people don't have that problem anymore, but now they're battling the oil industry and their own government that is trying to sell them out. Uh, and they're battling them in a fight to survive and also in a fight to protect the rainforest. So the documentary Yasuni Man is about uh, filmmaker Ryan and his native friend Otobo as they embark on an expedition into the most biodiverse forest on earth. So thanks for being on the podcast. Yeah, thank you for having me. So can you tell a bit about who you are and what you do? Yeah, my name is Ryan Kalaki. I was born and raised in Chicago and I uh, moved to the state of Montana to get a degree in wildlife biology. Um, after obtaining my degree, I did biological research for about a decade with bears and wolverines and bobcats, pine martin, fisher, lots of reptiles, amphibians, snails, and slugs. But my passion was with reptiles and amphibians, and eventually that passion brought me to the Amazon of Ecuador, where I discovered um, this pretty intense story about a conflict between biodiversity, human rights, and natural resource exploitation in the world's most biodiverse forest called Yasuni the man and biosphere reserve and um yasuni has come under threat very recently again yeah it's actually kind of been constantly under threat <laughs> since uh 
you know, the late 1800s from rubber barons, then came oil companies, uh, followed by missionaries, and then oil companies again. Um, soon after that, uh, we had, uh, you know, illegal loggers, um, bushmeat hunting, um, which really heavily impacted the biosphere. But the, the big issue is the exploitation of oil and the selling of oil blocks because this creates um, not only uh, an environmental issue but a human rights issue. And it's ironic also because uh, considering how much oil the world uses in a day it's not that much in that area. I mean it's not, a, it's not enough to power the world for a month even. Yeah, from the numbers that I've seen, it's approximated that it's about 24 days of um, oil consumption for the planet. So we're trading this very short-term use for a very low-quality crude oil, um, you know, and in the process destroying indigenous cultures and what is known as being this mega diverse region, which has many, many benefits um, to humankind. And what indigenous communities are living in that region you're talking about? Well, specifically, the Yasuni biosphere is known to um, be the home of the Warani people. Some Quechuas have moved into the area, into the Northern Territory, but all around it is another, you know, several other groups of indigenous people, the Sequoia, the Kofan, the Shuar, the Ashwar, and uh, a few others. Have you spent a lot of time in in the region? Yeah, I first moved to Ecuador in 2005, and I began working at an ecotourism lodge that was fully run by um, uh, the Sani Isla community, which is a Quechua community. And I lived there for about 14 months. I learned some Spanish, learned a lot about the biodiversity, and that's when I was really exposed to uh, human rights issues and um, issues with indigenous people. How much different are the cultures of the Varani and the Quechua, would you say? Do you can, is, is there any difference between them? There's lots of differences. Um, you know, I think people are much more similar, though, than um, we recognize, you know, uh, their cultures are very different, but you know the way that they they hunt and forage, the foods that they consume are very similar because the the forest provides all of these different uh, resources to the indigenous people of that area. Um, but the Warani have a completely um, unique language all to themselves, and their language was never written down either. So the first time that it was transcribed was by missionaries. I believe they began transcribing in the late 1950s when first peaceful contact was made. So you made a a film. Can you talk a bit about this film you made? Yeah, so the name of the movie is called Yasuni Man, and it essentially covers this conflict of biodiversity, human rights, and natural resource exploitation. So in what we have is Yasuni, the world's most biodiverse forest, and the Warani people who are the protectors of this region. And after contact, there remain two clans remained in voluntary isolation to this day, and they aggressively defend their territory from outsiders by typically spearing anybody to death that they encounter. Um, Below this territory is Ecuador's largest untapped oil reserves. So if you can imagine when you've got a a country who is so reliant on 
um, petroleum production uh, that it will wind up creating these massive issues inside. What it has spawned as well as the building of oil roads, you then get um, people hunting, uh, having easier access to uh, hunt uh, the wildlife species in the forest and sell them in the black market. Um, as well as make it easier to obtain like hardwood. So you, you saw this big flush of um, illegal loggers come into the region as well. So the movie wound up being filmed over the course of seven years from the end of 2009 until the middle of 2016. And, uh, you know, it's a, it was a passion project at the beginning. It was a huge learning curve. But since we released the film in October of 2016, we've gone on to win 14 um, international awards. Uh, we just won uh, just a couple days ago at um, EcoCup Environmental Film Festival of Russia. Um, so it's been a very positive experience in that regard. And what we're trying to do now is just get it out to a much wider public so advocacy organizations can use it, um, you know, to get it into the hands of, you know, politicians. And so we can actually make legitimate change on the ground. Most countries, they often argue that, yeah, but these resource resources we have uh, create a lot of money for our citizens. But... Isn't it, as it often is in Ecuador, that the money doesn't really stay in the country because many of those companies, they might pay a bit of money f to, the com to the country, but most of the money they take out? Yeah, and you know, oil is such a volatile um, resource, you know, the, the value of the oil fluctuates. So, you know, um, buy when it's low, sell when it's high is kind of the idea. But you never know what's really going to happen with the market. And with um, Ecuador, what they have done is they've got themselves in the situation where they've taken massive loans to build their infrastructure. But because they're dealing with such a volatile resource, um, they are now having to sell off all of their natural resources to pay for these massive loans that they have um, taken on this huge amount of debt. And, you know, oil is a finite resource and Ecuador is one of the smallest countries in South America and I believe it's the most densely populated. They've got somewhere between 15 and 16 million people right now. So the question is, is, you know, how is Ecuador going to wind up um, converting their economy once their oil days do come to an end? And that will very likely happen in my lifetime and I'm uh, 40 years old right now. And that's a very scary thought. And what we're seeing is the next steps, which the government is looking at, is, you know, going into do different forms of um, exploitation of looking for precious minerals and metals, such as gold mining. And the Amazon is a huge th crisis right now in Peru and parts of Brazil. And this is slowly coming into Ecuador. Um, you know, you also have other detrimental impacts, such as... Um, you know, grazing cattle and uh, creating soy plantations as well as palm oil plantations. We already see a lot of palm oil and bananas in the western side of Ecuador is actually, I believe it's about 95% deforested already. So it's just these little fragmented island patches of primary forest where the Amazonian region, the eastern part of Ecuador is actually still quite 
intact. And the region that Ecuador is in of the Amazon basin is in the northwestern section. And that northwestern section is actually the most intact portion of the Amazon. Therefore, it's showing that not only because of Yasuni's megadiversity, because it will be able to sustain itself longest and be protected throughout climate change, but it's also in the most intact region, which is the most important to um, protect because it still is in pristine capacity. As well as what we have is there's in, you know, Western Amazonia, there's specifically in Peru, there are several actually um, Peru and Brazil, there's, there's, I believe, about two dozen tribes, um, very, that number could be wrong, I think I actually read as up to 74 in the Amazon of completely uncontacted tribes. And, you know, this kind of connects, this Yasuni story very strangely connects to this um, big issue that we just heard over the past week and a half of this American missionary just went to North Sentinel Island and um, tried to contact, uh, to convert this group of people that are uncontacted on this island. Um, and we still, in this day and age, is very shocking that we have this colonialistic and, um, you know, need and desire to convert people. Um, it's kind of shocking. And Yasuni has this very similar connected story. Especially also because many of those uncontacted tribes are very sensitive to our uh, diseases and germs, so it can be quite lethal. So maybe it is better to shoot on site, you know, because uh, I know uh, when when I've been in Peru, some of the elders I've met there, they've spoken about how they, uh, uh, for generations, were afraid of white people because of disease, more than the fact that they were being enslaved by them. It was the disease that was the worst thing. Yeah, definitely. And I talk about that to some extent in Yasuni Man as well, where, you know, once outsiders have come in, they bring a whole slew of diseases with them, you know, from, um, you know, if, if you've never been exposed to something like a flu, flus can kill you, um, you know, chicken pox, smallpox, um, you know, the spreading of things like uh, mosquito-borne illnesses, which are oftentimes found in large populations of people, you can bring those in as well. Um, yellow fever, I believe, has been relatively common. Um, leishmaniasis, I know, is uh, an issue which I think is actually spread by sand flies, but I think you can actually contract it as well, if I'm not mistaken. Um, so, yeah, in, you know, for example, the people in North Sentinel Island, they're an island population and they are not getting off that island either, you know. So if you have a disease spread in a place like that, it could completely exacerbate the entire tribe and just wipe them out entirely, probably in a much more rapid fashion than anywhere else on the planet. And also if those tribes want to have contact, uh, they can contact the Western world on their own, you know. Yeah, I, I definitely think so. And I believe there are there was a tribe actually in Peru. Um, I can't remember if it was in like the Madre de Dios region of Peru, but they actually did come out. And I can't remember if it was because of sickness was coming through or um, some kind of famine, but they did actually come out and make contact themselves. Um, and I feel like that is what we need is, you know, at least self-determination. Let people want to be contacted 
let them choose it. You know, over the past several hundreds of years, you know, I think every single continent has, in the planet has seen this really disturbing form of this colonialist attitude of coming in, taking people's land, taking their territories, and enslaving them. We've seen it with the aboriginals in Australia. We've seen it with all of the uh, uh, indigenous uh, peoples in North America and, you know, through, through South America as well. It's something that has been um, commonly spread across the entire globe, specifically by, um, you know, Western Europeans actually in the beginning. It's hard to uh, do research on these uncontact tribes, of course, because you don't want to contact them, so it's very hard to study them. Uh, but talking to people that uh, know more than I do, uh, I have the impression from what they have said that uh, those con- uncontacted tribes, they, they are more aware and know more about our way of life than we might think, and they just choose to not participate. I don't know if I can speak directly to that, but I I think that is very possible. Um, You know, what I have seen specifically in the Yasuni region with all these expanding of roads, garbage gets left behind, the indigenous people, the um, people in voluntary isolation are actually watching the oil platforms from afar through the, the forest. They're very difficult to see. It's a very dense forest. So what we know about the numbers of people, as you said, it's very difficult to tell how many people are actually out there, where they are, because the only way to really to know is to do aerial surveys of these regions. And even with airplanes, it's very hard um, to to get an exact number of how many people are are there. And the other thing, too, is flying airplanes over the top of these people's heads. You know, it would probably be something similar to aliens coming and landing, you know, on our planet. And we would look up and be like, oh, my God, what's happening here? You know, it would be probably be extremely scary and disturbing for any culture who has never, um, you know, uh, seen or interacted with, you know, any kind of Western civilization. How long do you think it would take for a, a Westerner like ourselves to live with, live inside a, a, a real indigenous community and, and actually uh, feel like you are actually a, a part of the culture because even if you stay for a year you're still going to be a tourist in a sense but how long do you think it takes to like really feel like immersed in it and really understand it from the inside because that can take a long time even if you move to France it takes a long time to get into the French culture you know Yeah. um, You know, my film took me the course of seven years to really fully grasp, number one, just how complex these people and these communities are. Um, and, And also the other thing, too, is I'm not sure if they want you to feel comfortable. You know, I had talked to the Warani before and they said, we're fine with you coming in. We're fine with visitors coming in, but we don't want you to stay, you know. Um, this, this is not your home. This is not your territory. Um, you know, we, we will be friends, but you know, this is our place. So, um, you know, I, I think, I don't know if I would ever feel a hundred percent comfortable ever. It's, it's their home, it's their culture. And I'm a foreign Western outsider, specifically a, a white man, you know, with privilege. So, um, I don't know if I, I could really ever put myself in a position to say, you know, 
I would feel like one of them in any capacity. What a lot of people do is, you know, they'll go there, they'll get their face painted. And, you know, some people, you know, will, you know, I, I've seen wear some of the traditional clothing, which is pretty much nothing, just a come. Um, but I also feel in some capacity that's slightly disrespectful. Um, but that's just, you know, my opinion. In my experience, the all these different indigenous communities I've come in contact with, there's something very attractive with their way of life, especially coming from my own uh, European background. And uh, I try to incorporate some of the attitude or the outlook on life. Um, and it's hard to describe in words, but it's, it's, it's best thing to say is an attitude because, you know, I still live in a house with electricity and Wi-Fi and fiber optics and everything. So, you know, but at least some inspiration from their attitude and outlook and, uh, and also this thing about the pace of life, trying to like slow it down because my experience in the rainforest is it's the time slows down a bit. And not that it gets boringly slow, it still feels fast, but it just goes slower. Um, do you have any thoughts or experiences with these kind of ideas? <laughs> yeah, definitely. You know, I mean, I think that's that. I think that's actually part of why I go to the Amazon in some capacity. Is we live such busy lives in this digital world that we're now living. Social media, you know. W- Westerners, typically, especially Americans, we work way too much. We don't spend enough time with our friends. We don't spend enough time with our our families. We're constantly, um, you know, in this hunt to obtain things and succeed. And when you go and live with, for example, the Warani, all of that stuff disappears when you're there living with them. You no longer have the stress and the pressure of your your daily life. And it definitely does allow you to step back and reflect and understand, I think, some of the things that are more important in life. And I find not only rainforests, but just nature, the outdoors, that is my medicine. That is my therapy. If I don't get that, on a semi-regular basis, I real really feel sick and ill to my to my core, and that is what I, I I love about you know people like the Warani and the Kichwa that I've spent a lot of time with is that you know they are really able to live in their moment. They're they're not thinking about paying rent in a week. You know they're not really thinking about their next job. They're just living in that moment. And, you know, the people around, you know, in the, the westernized world and the more developed world were constantly, you know, in, in this, this strange search. And I, I don't, I, I don't under, I don't understand it, you know? Um, so yeah, I mean, there, there's, there's a, a ton to learn from, these people and the way that they approach life. So this film you made, uh, you show the problems of the area, but uh, are you also showing the, the hopeful side? What what could be done to, to stop the negative developments? 
I, I don't know if I actually have solutions for any of these things specifically. Um, you know, I'm a documentarian, so my role is to go and show you what I see. Um, I've got moments where it's a very difficult film to watch. There's tribal nudity, there's violence, there's animal slaughtering. Um, a lot of um, the subject matter is very, very heavy. You know, it's, it's not a happy story. Um, you know, this is about the destruction of human cultures. It's the destruction of wildlife and it's the destruction of um, our world's most biodiverse forest just so we can obtain resources. I don't think that there's many positive stories there. So what I have tried to do is bring that to light while at the same time, though, trying to bring moments of levity so you don't get too bogged down in the heaviness of what's going on. But, you know, when you do watch Yasuni Man, I think why people love it so much is they actually see Number one, how the Warani people have a lot more in common with us than we, we may think. Um, there's a scene in the film where um, my main subject's parents are having this conversation. They're just bickering about the cat and the dog being in the house, and they're always looking for scraps. And, you know, the Otobo's father is hungry, and his mother hands him some food, and he says, oh, this yuca's hard. And, um, you know, they get in this little argument, and... And then he says, you know, one day I'm going to climb up a tree and I'm going to fall and die. And both of them have this moment where they laugh out loud. And everybody loves that because I think we can all identify with those moments in our own lives. We've probably all heard our parents say something similarly as ridiculous as that. I definitely know that I've heard my parents say that. So um, I, 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 I've tried to bring, and you know, the, the Warani, they're very funny people. They're smiling all the time. They're laughing all the time. And it feels really good to be around them. Unfortunately, they're a group of people who have been exploited since they've been contacted. Maybe the film itself is part of the solution because if people see it and they become aware, it's harder to do dodgy things behind people's backs if if they know about it you know yeah definitely and i think that's the biggest thing about documentary film is that it exposes issues that you would not know exist um you know there's a lot of effort put in by the ecuadorian government to not allow people to gain very much access to the region um, so you can't see the oil spills that are going on inside of the national park so it's difficult to connect with the warani to help them with um their rights so you know there's there's a lot, yeah, a, a lot going on in that regard. So do you have to like sneak to get to the disaster areas? Well, there's, yeah, you kind of have to be a little bit sneaky, or you have to, um, you know, know the right people who can help get you uh, the access to those regions. Um, but everywhere you go, you know, I've been into a couple spots, and you know, within five ten minutes, you have the police behind you or the military and they're trying to arrest you and they're escorting you out of these spots because they oftentimes really don't want you to see. And, you know, Ecuador has this long history of, you know, oil spills. The Chevron Texaco lawsuit had been going on for decades now, and I believe it's still happening. So, yeah, so you do have to be, you know, very aware of 
of, of where you are, what you're doing, who you're with. I always find it interesting that people can actually be goons for these oil companies, how they can live with themselves. I, I know I met a guy in Peru one time and he worked for an oil company, but after he's traveling around the Amazon in Peru, he actually quit. Yeah, and you know, that's the funny thing is, you know, lots of these people, even, you know, when I go into the Amazon and I see these these guys working these low-paying jobs is is uh an oil worker, you know, working on a pipeline, or I see an illegal logger, you know, or I see one of these Warani hunting bushmeat, you know, trying to make a survival in the Amazon is difficult for everybody there. These people are not oil executives, you know, they're not running corporations. Really what most of these people really are trying to do is get food on the plate for their families. Um, you know, and, and sometimes, you know, you wind up being on the wrong end. Um, and, you, you know, that, that, that's the very difficult part about this story is that there's so many people out there now who are just in this, this constant daily struggle. You know, I went to this um, bushmeat market and I talked to several of these people and, you know, they were like, man, we got this catfish, it's 150 pounds, and, you know, we can sell this thing for, you know, $100. And, you know, $100 to to somebody in in Ecuador, that's a lot of money. You know, that gets them, them and their family by for, you know, a full week or something like that, maybe more. So um, what I try to do, and I think what people really appreciate about Yasuni Man is that it shows all of the contradictions of this region and I don't think it really makes anybody specifically um, a villain um, you know everybody is responsible for the protection of Yasuni even if you don't know it you know the the Amazon is providing oxygen for all of us um, tropical rainforests you know give give the world most of the medicines that we derive, um, you know, for, for human health. Um, and in my opinion is that we have to be altruistic as well. Just, it's just good. Even if you don't see the Amazon, it's good to know that it's there and that it's surviving and that it's living, um, because we are all benefiting in some capacity. And I think one of the most important stories about this entire Yasuni, Yasuni Man is that Yasuni Man is not just a story about Ecuador. It's not just about this one little biosphere. The story is happening around the world, you know, and we really have to, to keep that in mind when, um, you know, when, when you watch this. This, this. this could be... You know, this could be Cameroon, you know, it could be Indonesia, um, you know, it, it could be one of many different places. And if my greatest concern is if we are not able to protect the crown jewel of biodiversity in the most important forest on the planet, how can we expect to protect any other place that has less diversity, places that don't have indigenous people? Um, places that don't have the kinds of resources 
that Yasuni has. If we can't protect the most important spot, how can we protect any other spot? So if people want to watch this film you've made, where can they do that? And what what are your uh, social media sites? Yeah, so we are just wrapping up our um, festival circuit. Um, We've had about 80 screenings uh, domestically and internationally. And now we are making a transition into distribution and getting it online. So the best thing to do at the time being is follow us on social media. You can find us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Yasuni Man. That's Y-A-S-U-N-I-M-A-N. You can also uh, go to our web pages, which is polywogproductions.net and yasuniman.com. That's P-O-L-L-Y-W-O-G productions.net and yasuniman, Y-A-S-U-N-I-M-A-N dot com. Thanks a lot for taking the time to be on the podcast. Yeah, thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Go to yasuniman.com if you want to check out the film. And please become a patron over at patreon.com forward slash naturalbornalchemist before you get back to work or or whatever you're doing. Uh, Please support the podcast and also follow the podcast in social media, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter and all that. All the links over at naturalbornalchemist.com and in the program notes. I appreciate all the support. And you can also leave a nice review on iTunes, of course. I want to close with a beautiful song I recorded live uh, of Kichwa musician uh, Yaku Viteri. The song is called Sarayako. He's singing about his home, his homeland, Sarayako region of, of uh, the Ecuadorian Amazon. It's a wonderful song. Um, I hope you enjoy it. See you all in a week. And to quote Terence McKenna, take it easy, but take it. Freedom is in the mind. Such a man, me. Sarayaku.